You can have messaging that suggests something very effective, but people will not comply with it because it's either too extreme, it's too difficult, or it flies in the face of their beliefs. You need to be able to reach that medium of something being effective, being compassionate to people's needs and beliefs, and being something that will achieve high compliance because effective messaging is not effective if you don't get behavioral changes, right? You need that compliance. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and various remote locations throughout State College, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. And this is our first ever fully remote recording. Um, We are working remotely in social distancing and all of that uh, in the midst of the coronavirus. So you'll likely hear 100% more dogs in the show than you have uh, previously, but we hope you'll bear with us as we, like everyone else, adjust to the new realities that we all find ourselves in. This is uh, the topic we, we are, we're going to talk about today, right? That's right. Uh, joining us today is Nita Barty, an assistant professor of biology and the Lloyd Huck Early Career Professor in the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences at Penn State. And we're going to talk all about the coronavirus and public health messaging and, and how that differs in democracies versus authoritarian countries. So no shortage of, of things to talk about there. Yeah, I think actually there's really two questions on this uh, when we're talking about a democracy. One is how you posed it, how democracies and authoritarian regimes differently respond to a crisis like this. But the other is how the crisis affects our democracy. We're not health experts. We're not, we we can't tell you except to say, wash your hands. We're not going to do anything beyond that. But my healthcare professional wife in the room just said, don't touch your face either. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, we can talk about what does this mean for democracy? Chris, the, uh, the, the coronavirus began in an authoritarian country in China. We've heard a lot about how different countries around the world have been responding. So what's interesting is that you find success and failures on both sides, right? Exactly. Yeah, because authoritarian regimes and democracies each bring different strengths and weaknesses to these kinds of problems. I think that's right. And I think that's what's so really interesting about this. To the degree that we can abstract from the human tragedy, you know, you see both democracies and authoritarian governments bringing different features of their everyday life to this crisis and responding better or worse as a result, right? The basic features are that an authoritarian government is closed and it is not set up to allow for an open and honest exchange of information. And and information is, of course, critical in a public health crisis. Right. And so that's the basic downside of an authoritarian government, whereas a democracy is just better able and better institutionalized to deal with the full and frank and uh, truthful exchange of information, right? Right. And so information in these uh, authoritarian countries like China is going to be very tightly controlled by the regime. As it always is. That's true. So the other half of that is that after China understood that this was not going away, they responded dramatically, quickly, and I guess you would say 
cold-heartedly to this reality, right? Because, you know, authoritarian regimes can act very fast. Right. They, and that's, they don't have to deal with Congress. Right. And or constituencies, to, right? They don't have to deal with constituencies. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they have power is highly concentrated in the hands of, uh, you know, a very small number of people. And they can act and they can act quickly. And there's no real tradition or understanding of civil rights. So if the government says... We're putting you in quarantine. We don't care if you're a child. We're putting you individual into quarantine. And that goes for other things that China has done, right? That's about civil rights, but they also put up a hospital in a week, right? It is true they can act fast. They can seem to act very authoritatively and effectively. But uh, the uh, economists did a very interesting little study where they compared democracies with authoritarian regimes over many, many epidemics. And uh, their conclusion is that overall authoritarian governments have more deaths. Right. And I think what that comes down to is that it's easier for democracies to, in a crisis, move quickly than it is for authoritarians to suddenly change their stripes and become open and honest with respect to the supply of information. Right. 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 And within our country, there's a further complication of the fact that we're a federalist country. And so whereas an authoritarian country or even a more centralized country can have a national uniform response in the U.S., like with almost everything, we have a patchwork of responses. We have some governors who are taking very, very stringent actions. We have other governors that are really doing not all that much. That's true. And I just want to add one more wrinkle to this, and that is that democracies differ as well, right? I mean, the United States is a distinctively libertarian country. Italy and South Korea are both democracies, but they both shut down parts of their country. There's no question that they were going to do that, irrespective of the question of what that means to civil liberties. They just did it. Now, mind you, in both countries, the virus was much more, the epidemic was much more uh, extended and dangerous. And so people saw this as in their self-interest, irrespective of their civil rights. We've been talking a bit here about the differences between democracies and authoritarian governments. It's probably worth pointing out that democracies in wartime settings are more like authoritarian governments than they are in non-wartime settings. I mean, wars give democracies, democratic leaders, the excuse and the opportunity and the powers to the act. powers act, right? Yeah, to yeah. act in, to act in, well, I think there's some sort of an emergency act. But, you know, when, when President Trump yesterday or this week started That's to true. refer That's to right. himself as a wartime president, I think there is a clear purpose to that, and that is that they want that wartime presidents can act in more unilateral and direct ways than they can when they're not in wartime. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe we can uh, pick up on on some of that after the interview, but I think we've kind of set the framework here for some of what we're going to be talking with Nita about. So let's go now to my interview with Nita Barty. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Nita Barty. Nita, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks, Jenna. We are going to 
talk today in the, the midst of the coronavirus outbreak about the relationship between information, government, and the public in the midst of an outbreak. So it's a, a complex topic. Um, we're going to kind of come at it from, from a couple of different angles. But I guess maybe to start off, can you talk about as someone who has studied and, and works in, in this field, what are some of the considerations that go into public health messaging during an outbreak? The government and public health officials are constantly assessing and reassessing and triaging during times like this with new emergence events. Um, so think about things like SARS, the first time we saw HIV in the 80s, the current situation with this coronavirus. Those are all very different things, but the thing that they have in common is that really nobody knows what's going on in the sense of what to expect with projecting trajectories, projecting morbidity and mortality, and understanding what the most effective way to act is. How do you put in place policy when you're not really sure what the situation is. Right. And, and it seems like there, there might also be a balance to strike between providing clear and accurate information, but also not maybe causing a sense of panic unnecessarily. Can, can you talk about what that balance looks like? Yeah, I think that's um, a really important and difficult balance. So how do you maintain transparency but sort of leave things in a maybe need-to-know kind of realm where people maybe don't need to know something that would incite panic if they can act on information that's true and transparent without making the situation worse. You know, that's really the, the trick with underreacting versus overreacting. I think the, the retrospective nature of how we assess what has happened if we've done our jobs, it should always look like we overreacted. And I would say that that is not the situation, or that's not how someone looking back would describe the early stages of coronavirus response in the U.S. I think that's absolutely true. I think that the early response in the U.S. was essentially no response. What do you think were, were some of the factors that went into that line of decision-making and how have things changed since then? So if we back all the way up to sort of December of 2019, when there was a mysterious cluster of cases of pneumonia in Wuhan city and really nobody knew what was going on, there was some sort of on-the-fly decisions being made by the Chinese government. And there's things that probably would be done differently, well, that, that hopefully would be done differently about transparency and messaging during that time. But what really happened was that we saw the outbreak unfolding in China, and that gave kind of the whole rest of the world time to prepare. They bought us really important time to prepare, and we wasted it. We didn't react the way we should have reacted in America and with public health policy and preparedness the way we should have. Instead of responding to what was obviously a very easily transmissible, devastating disease, we pretended like it wasn't going to happen here. 
I, I know people often compare the U.S. to South Korea, for for example. Can you talk about how their approach differed and, and maybe some other countries that took a different course of action with the same information that we saw coming out of China early on? Every country is going to handle things differently, and there are different amounts of regulation that are acceptable under different government organizations or under different governments just in general. So I think that without even having to look at what other countries did that was successful or not, within the U.S.'s normal amount of oversight and power and regulation, there was a lot of preparedness that could have happened. And there was a lot of transparent messaging that could have happened about taking this virus seriously, getting resources in place, not just for healthcare workers and healthcare providers, but for the general public and messaging on what people need and don't need. And a lot of that really basic stuff that didn't really require a lot more than a couple of really clearly worded statements from a high up official. Instead, I think a lot of the messaging was surrounding xenophobia and racism and not preparedness. And I think a lot of the action reflected that and reflected that people were not taking this virus very seriously. When in fact, we have the data in hand by then to know that it should be. Right. So what does that process look like to, to the extent that you know inside the government? I know we we hear about the CDC and uh, of course now we see Dr. Fauci all over the place, but there's kind of a number of kind of government agencies. There's a, a bureaucracy that's, that's sort of a part of this. So, I mean, what does that like information chain of command look like? I think a lot of the scientists early on, uh, including people at the CDC, were well aware that this needed to be taken seriously and were well aware that there were things that could be done without infringing on human rights. There were things that could be done with the data that we had in hand um, that would have set us up for being prepared at the early stages of this outbreak. That information and those warnings and those actions didn't really make their way to the current White House administration. I think that the messaging that came out of the president and certainly when Mike Pence was put in charge of this outbreak, I think a lot of that messaging really was based on this idea that it wasn't going to be a big deal. They weren't that worried about it. You have a new piece out in the conversation, uh, which we'll link to in in the show notes. But you you argue there that it, it really might have been the NBA and other kind of public figures that really started to to help drive the the message about how serious the the coronavirus is, uh, given this this lack of of government action early on. Can you talk more about what that looked like? I felt like we were consistently getting a message from the government that this wasn't a big deal. We just had to keep it out of the country, right? Which at the time where that messaging was continuing, we had certainly already had sustained local transmission of the virus inside of the U.S. That general idea of this isn't very serious, I think was heard by a lot of people who are not scientists and could not make a different decision based on data themselves. So a lot of that guidance about what we should think of this and how we should react to this that was coming from political figures really downplayed what was going on while the scientists were saying entirely something else. 
I think that the reach of major league sports in general, certainly nationally, but also internationally, I think that the reach of major league sports cuts across political parties. And I think that the really immediate and powerful decision by the NBA to suspend all games in the league and the obvious financial hit that that would have on the league really showed that we should be taking this seriously. This isn't about money or finances, and this isn't about entertainment. This is about human health and human lives. And in doing something so big and so unprecedented, I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans took notice, and that really put the pressure on the other leagues other than the NBA, right? So then the NHL followed the NCAA after, you know, kind of going back and forth on a few different ways of how to handle this, whether they should cancel live crowds or, you know, do, do things a little bit differently. They finally went ahead and canceled all their games. So there's, there's obviously no March Madness this year. But I think all of these things that seemed unbelievable and unprecedented and like they would never happen, they all happened very quickly. And I think that was a real turning point for the American public about what is going on and is it serious? From your previous work in this area, I mean, what what types of messaging and, and how often do messages need to be reinforced to the public to, to really make a, a difference in, in people's behaviors when it comes to outbreaks and to public health? Yeah, so this is a really good question, and this lies at the heart of a lot of outbreak control. The real point of messaging, the end game with messaging is to deliver something that will be effective and that will garner a high rate of compliance. So you can have messaging that suggests something very effective, but people will not comply with it because it's either too extreme, it's too difficult, or it flies in the face of their beliefs. So you need to be able to reach that medium of something being effective, being compassionate to people's needs and beliefs, and being something that will achieve high compliance because effective messaging is not effective if you don't get behavioral changes, right? You need that compliance. One of the kind of unique features about the U.S. is that, you know, one state or, or a couple of states tend to do something. Others like follow suit. I don't know if it's like state level FOMO or, you know, what happens, <laughs> but there's like everybody just kind of wants to to, to follow along. So it seems like some of those things might be, you know, certainly keeping in mind like the, the health and safety of, of the residents of that state, but maybe like also trying to send a, a bigger message out to the other states, to the rest of the country that look, even in like the absence of action from Washington, we as a state are going to say that, that, that we'll do this and you know, maybe others should kind of follow suit. Yeah, I think that that has been really important for this particular outbreak. I think as in the early weeks when the federal government seemed to not be taking this seriously, I think a lot of of cities and mayors made important strides and statements towards trying to control something and trying to send messages that were reassuring. Uh, A couple of states or a couple of cities and then states did a good job of messaging that testing would be free and people wouldn't have to worry about the cost of that. You know, I think New York and probably Seattle would have led the way on that. But I think that there's a lot of power in, in that kind of local messaging. The state level FOMO, I think, is a little bit more about not wanting to look reckless 
not wanting to be, you know, the one state that was like, no, it's, it's okay, do whatever you want. And then you're going to see consequences. I think the need to exercise caution when it comes to human health and human lives is despite everything going on around us, I think that is pretty well ingrained in most leaders that you would rather err on the side of caution when you're facing something like a pretty uncharted epidemic. What else can we learn from history about what types of mitigation tactics or, or, or messaging work or don't work? I, I know you and I were, were talking before we started recording. There's, there's another example from the Ebola era where screening travelers coming into and out of the country might not be effective, even though on its face, you could maybe think of a world in which that could potentially be the case. Movement restrictions, travel screening, things like that tend not to be super effective. Those types of control measures are really focused on importation or exportation of a pathogen. And in general, by the time we've seen the effects of of an outbreak and we've understood how it's spreading or how widely it's spreading, it's a bit late to be stopping introduction. It's already there. Uh, So that tends to be a little bit ineffective. We know that stopping local transmission is really what we'd like to do. And some of the restrictions surrounding local movements are really, really difficult to enforce and result in very low compliance. And that creates its own issues. That makes it very hard to do any kind of contact tracing. It makes it very hard to actually get an idea of spatially where things are a problem. Because if you ban movement, and people are going to move anyway, because they need to for personal and financial reasons, just going to work, whatever, then you're going to end up with these really sort of unknown spots of how people were moving and how they became infected. Whereas if you're able to be honest and open and get realistic restrictions in place, People will be compliant and they will be honest. Right. And we talked earlier about what China did early on and in, in, in some of the ways that they suppressed information, certainly. But then kind of once they snapped into action, they were able to, because it's an authoritarian country and we've seen this in Russia and, and other places too, you know, they're able to really be more strict about where people can or can't go, or, you know, they yeah. put up a hospital in a day, all these, all these types of things. So it seems like there's like a human rights element to this too, of like trying to have that, that sense of control, but also not be so oppressive that you end up having kind of adverse impacts in kind of the other direction. I mean, that sort of individual rights and public health push-pull has probably been a part of the conversation for every epidemic we've ever faced. So I think that there are a lot of ways to control outbreaks and not breach human rights. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. I think some of the downstream effects of one or the other can make people feel like it's okay to... Sometimes people can think that the ends justify the means. And I don't think that that has to be the case. I think we can be really respectful and ethical and that violate human rights and still find effective solutions for stopping outbreaks. In an authoritarian regime, obviously, there's a lot more latitude for what a government can do versus what maybe makes the most sense. We know that the downstream effects on individuals from the total lockdown and quarantine of people in China, and particularly in Wuhan, have been devastating. I don't think that that 
is a good outcome. You know, I think it's great that there was a huge slowdown of transmission, but I don't think that everything else that came at the cost of everything else that happened, I don't think that that was ideal. And I don't know if it was necessary, right? It's hard to sort of, essentially, I don't want to sit here and blame or second guess anybody, but I think we should take what we see happening in other places and learn from it. I think we should kind of take what we're seeing from really what is essentially massive novel experiments happening around the world under different governments as we all react a little bit differently to this outbreak. We should take that as data collection and learn from it. And I would look at what happened in China as maybe something that probably wasn't 100% successful. Can you talk about what the medical community and the science community have been doing or, or started doing in those kind of early days when it seemed like the White House was was not maybe taking this as seriously as they should have and, and not providing the messages that the public needed to hear? You know, what did kind of the, the science and, and medical communities do to step up and fill that void, so to speak? So in the early days, I think that Twitter was really active, and I think it was active with both information and misinformation. It's an easy way to sort of have an opinion and shout it to the world and not necessarily have to have much to back up that opinion. So I think there were really good scientists who were making important points on Twitter, and I think that there were some really uninformed people making a lot of invalid points on Twitter early on. But one of the things that that happened, I think, quite quickly in this outbreak, but to me seems really unprecedented, is the rate at which scientists started to come together to do research collaboratively and share what they were doing in a very transparent and public way. And I think the preprint servers... Uh, played a huge role in this. So, you know, the the process with scientific journals and and publishing science and sharing it, for our listeners who don't necessarily know how this goes. Yes, um, thank you. (laughs) So there's this process where scientists sort of do their research and, you know, it takes years and then they write it up and they submit it to a journal. And the journal has it sent out for what is called peer review, which means other scientists in the field who aren't familiar with the work review it. And that is usually something of a process that goes back and forth between multiple reviewers and the editor and the authors for a while. That can take, I mean, there's some worst case scenarios, but you want to plan on that to take somewhere between six months and a year. So you've spent years doing research and then you spend, you know, maybe, maybe a year with that research in review where it's sort of locked into what is a solid state. You, you're not going to be messing with it and improving it and editing it. Um, And it's being reviewed by your peers. And after that, it is published. And that's generally online these days, but it's not seen before that. And so there's this very long delay between doing science and sharing science. And what the preprint servers allow scientists to do is to share things, to basically write a paper and put it online in a place where other people can see it without it having yet gone through peer review. So that's good and bad, right? It really increases the rate at which people can communicate, scientists can communicate with each other, but it also sort of takes away a level of protection. And so you have a lot more volume with this outbreak. You have a lot more volume of papers coming out on coronaviruses than we did, say, last year. But suddenly we have a huge increase in the number of studies and papers on coronaviruses. And we've sort of taken away the filter 
for what's high quality, what's low quality. So these preprint servers are a little bit flooded. But if you're a scientist, that means that you have access to all these things and you can probably tell the difference. If you're not a scientist and you can't tell the difference, you probably can't tell the difference, right? And that's the problem. <laughs> so a lot of that stuff will end up on Twitter too. And so, you know, there's a good and a bad with the speed of information being shared really, really increasing, but as a sort of cost. Early in this outbreak, I think there was a, a huge sort of signal to noise kind of shift. And I think we've sort of settled in on now there's a a handful of people who are really immersed and working incredible. And a lot of us are looking to them. Thinking again here from like a, a global perspective, do you think that we're seeing the international cooperation that we need to, to really tackle this, this virus effectively? Should the U.S. maybe be taking more of, of a leadership role than it has thus far, do you think? So I uh, am honestly a little bit worried about where international relations are going to go after this outbreak. Every time Trump closes a new border, I worry about what that means for relationships with those countries. Certainly when he closed the border to Western Europe, I don't know, a lifetime ago, last week, two weeks, when was that? Uh, when he closed those borders, it was not received well by the leaders of the countries that were within that block. And I think that that's a fair reaction. That was a useless measure and it did nothing. It was not going to be an effective public health step to take. And it sent a very negative signal about international cooperation. You know, and I worry coming out of this, I'm, I'm surprised more countries haven't blatantly just said that they're closing their borders to the U.S. I know that that has <laughs> been talked about a lot, but yeah, I, I do worry about the long-term effects on international relations as a result of some of these slightly bizarre and ineffective policies. I think international cooperation in general is really the only way to get through infectious diseases and, and outbreaks because we don't have administrative borders for diseases, right? They go where we are and we're everywhere. And so it seems really, really sort of short-sighted to try and close borders when really what we should be doing is working together. Switching gears just just a little bit here, but before we start to wrap up, what do you make of the testing approach that the, the U.S. has taken thus far? Are there things that you think we could or, or should be doing differently to help uh, you know, mitigate and, and help uh, prevent further spread of the virus? Yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like we're only testing NBA players, which is an odd strategy. <laughs> I think that the lack of testing that's happening right now is probably the greatest weakness out of everything that's gone wrong here. The lack of testing is really the thing that is holding us back. We don't know what's going on. We have a good sense that there's a lot of mild infections that are transmitting, and we have a good sense that there's probably a ton of unreported cases out there. So we're underestimating and underreporting the impact of this. And all of that means that we can't get ahead of it. We're constantly reacting. The lack of testing and the, and the shortage of testing kits has, I think, absolutely been probably the biggest hindrance on the entire U.S. response. We should be testing everybody. We should be testing everybody in drive-through clinics like South Korea set up almost immediately. We should be making this really easy. And instead, what we're hearing is that people who have either travel history or symptoms or 
sort of high-risk contacts, they're not being eligible for testing unless one of their contacts has been already tested positive. And so we're sort of stuck on like a hamster wheel where you can't get tested unless your contacts were tested positive, but your contacts can't get tested until their contacts are tested positive and you just like it never ends. I think that that not just for understanding how to stop this current outbreak, but for understanding how future viruses might spread, right? This isn't the last respiratory virus we're going to see. For understanding really what's happening here, how interactions are playing a role in transmission and understanding, you know, different kinds of vulnerability, who's more vulnerable to infection versus severe infection versus high levels of transmission. We're really just hamstringing ourselves. We've gotten to a point where we don't know what's going on. Everything is so reactive that we can't get ahead of it. And we've wasted so much time not getting the important information and testing everybody that we've backed ourselves into a corner. All right. Do you think it is, it is possible at this point to get off the hamster wheel or, or try to try to reach a point where we are getting ahead of things at all? So I don't think that that's impossible, but I do think that you lay the groundwork for something and you see the results of it weeks or months later. We haven't laid the groundwork. So the time that we lost not reacting early in the outbreak when the government wasn't taking this seriously was when we should have been stocking up on tests and PPE and protecting healthcare workers and getting bills into place to have paid sick days and everything else that is going to now, hopefully, best case scenario, happen. And it's March. And this is what should have been happening in January. So yeah, in a couple of months, maybe, I don't think it's impossible. I don't think that we should not act. Obviously, late is better than never, and that we didn't do something before doesn't mean we shouldn't stop us from doing it now. But I think that we have to be realistic about why it's so important to be prepared. And what is the weight of that word? Being prepared means having stuff done in advance. And we are now doing stuff only reactively because we failed to do anything effective in advance. Right. Last question here, Nita, before we we let you go. You were talking before about things being closed and you're not being able to to go to the gym and go out to, to eat and all these all these things that we've seen as we as you know states and cities have, have tried to enforce this social distancing and, and breaking up large gatherings. How long do you think that we're we're likely to see these these types of, of restrictions in place or these these types of, of social distancing measures enforced? So I think there's two parts of this that are equally important. I think it's important that we all realize that whenever these official restrictions are scheduled to be lifted in a couple weeks for some of us, that's not the end of this. So this idea of flattening the curve, which probably people have seen on social media, which means that you basically slow down the trajectory of the epidemic so that you don't have a ton of cases all at once because that overwhelms the healthcare system. So flattening the curve, which is really our only option right now, but it means that what we're trying to do is keep infections from happening. And so in a couple of weeks, when we think we're all looking ahead to maybe getting back to normal, if we actually get back to what was normal before, we're going to see a huge surge in infections. We're going to see exponential growth transmission. And that really isn't why we're doing all of this, right? So it's really important that we all get into our heads right now that we're going to have a new normal and we're going to have to be okay with that because pushing back against it is pointless. 
So I think that we will start to see changes in restrictions, but I don't think that it's reasonable to think that they're going to be lifted, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They will look different. Nita, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jenna. It was great to talk to you. So, Chris, I was really struck by her emphasis on the importance of information during an epidemic like this. Uh, in a democracy, of course, that information is not centrally controlled out of the government the way that it would be in an authoritarian regime. We're very dependent upon the media and more decentralized sources to relay that information. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, places like CDC and even the, the FDA, whatever, they all have a role to play. But even their information is more often than not conveyed through these these media outlets. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, we're seeing something really quite interesting here during this uh, in the American response. There are these daily press conferences uh, from the White House, often with the president or with the vice president in charge with all kinds of experts arrayed behind them where they are trying to put across authoritative information on what's going on. And they're doing that by talking to the media and depending on them to get it out. It seems that the one thing you should not be able to partisanize is a viral epidemic, right? <laughs> yeah. The virus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, right? But yet in a way that is very very reminiscent of what we were saying about authoritarians and how they can't simply turn on a dime. I don't think the president can either. I think the right. president it, just always sees things in this partisan lens. And so he's you know, doing the same thing now. Well, this is this is what's going to make our response here so much different than our response, say, in another national emergency. I know you and I have talked a little bit about how the U.S. responded during World War II, for example. So here's what I think is different and potentially terrifying about the difference between the United States in World War II and the United States now. Our democracy, as inefficient and as partisan as it is, was able to mobilize incredibly quickly, right? I can't remember exactly how fast the Ford plants in Detroit moved from producing cars to producing tanks, but it was in the, the span of weeks. And on top of that, you had California, the entire state of California having blackouts. And there was no argument, no talk about, well, it's my right to keep my lights on. You know, it was a war footing and things just were accepted under those terms. Yeah, well, we're not only a much more partisan and polarized country than we were then, we also have much less confidence and trust in public institutions. Right. And, you know, we've been tracking and talking about this over uh, on, on many different shows, and uh, we've been seeing it for years and years, this sort of erosion of trust in institutions among Americans. But it's times like this that you really need to trust them. Well, and you know what else you have also talked about that I think is relevant in exactly this context is the inevitable or natural American inclination to denigrate expertise is now up to 11. And suddenly... Who do you need more in a pandemic than an expert? I actually think, and, and surveys support this 
quite a bit that people have more trust and confidence in their local and state level office holders than they do in the federal government right now. Yeah, they're going to tell the truth. Yeah. And we are really seeing uh, some governors on both sides, Democratic and Republican, really excelling both in their ability to make important decisions without hesitation, communicating the reasons for doing this. I'm thinking of DeWine in Ohio, who is Mm -hmm. a Republican, Andrew Cuomo in New York. There are other governors around the country who are really doing an extraordinary job and who the public have a great deal of confidence and respect in. And that's why I was saying on the first part of the show today, you know, we, we have this sort of patchwork developing because there really is not the national leadership that you might expect in a situation like this. And governors are stepping into the void. I'm not surprised to see it, but we've probably lost track over the last few years with all the focus on the circus like atmosphere in Washington, that there are some serious, sober people who are uh, leading the states. Yeah. Look, these people are viewing this as their responsibility, not in terms of their own political partisan advantage. Absolutely. And they're working with one another. And they're listening to one another. They're talking and learning from one another. They're seeing what worked. They're seeing what didn't. It's a very different feeling than you get when you watch these national press conferences. I think that example is one that all of us ought to be lauding and also modeling, right? That right. that we yeah. need to move beyond a partisan lens here and look upon this as a, as a health emergency and looking upon all of us as being in this together. Yeah. Well, we should bring this in because uh, either this is going to be a very long podcast or Jenna's going to be editing all weekend. <laughs> And we don't want either one of those things. So that's yeah. fine. So let, let's do that from various locations around State College. Uh, this has been Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.